Well, as is our practice, if you're able, would you stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word? And we'll be reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. What then? Are we Jews any better off? A little context. That's an odd way to start off a passage. The last time we were in Romans, we discussed how Paul's bouncing back and forth, talking to Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians. He just got done saying that the Jewish Christians have some advantages over the Gentile Christians. They have the Old Testament, things like that. And now in this passage, that's where we are when he says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And we're so grateful that we have God's Word to study this morning. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So we're studying the book of Romans in the Bible. We study the Bible because we truly believe this to be God's Word to us. Divine, a miraculous book. Within this book are 66 books. It's really a library with books of all different genres. There's history books. There's books to give us wisdom. There's a book with uh, poetry and songs in it. There's prophecy books where God spoke to a prophet and said, say this. And they said it and they wrote it down. Those are prophecy books. There's biographies of Jesus. There's four of those. There's a history book that covers the history of the church when it first got started. And there's letters. There's letters written by church leaders to churches or church leaders to individuals. Romans is one of the letters written by Paul, the Apostle Paul, the famous Paul. There's only so many Pauls that you just say Paul and you know who they're talking about. Paul was a hater of Christians who was converted and became a leader of Christians. And in this letter, Romans, he's writing to the Christians in, where would you think based on the title of the book? Rome, that's right. Just like you would imagine, ancient Rome, columns, togas, I I don't know if they actually wore togas. That kind of garb. um, Probably had those leafy crown things that you see, maybe. I don't know. I should have done some research before I started going into that. I have history teachers in here. Um, The Christians in Rome. Rome was a big city. Think New York City. Diverse group of people in Rome. One of Paul's goals in this letter is to unite this diverse bunch of people. Now, we've talked about a lot of times before that the primary two groups were the Jewish Christians, the, uh, the Jews that decided, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. These were the ones with the history, with the traditions, with the uh, laws. They were historically God's people. 
and the Gentile Christians, which were the non-Jewish people. Everybody that wasn't a Jew was a Gentile. Many of these people came to Christ too. These people in Rome would have come from a very pagan culture. So you've got these traditional, very moral Jewish Christians and these brand new Christians from pagan Rome, where you know, in Rome they would go to temples to worship their gods and their worship was paying a prostitute. Um, very pagan group of people. You can imagine there might be some friction there. Uh, I don't think we're that diverse as a church, really. We're pretty homogenous, is that the word? Kind of all coming from sort of the same background. Now, there's some diversity within it, but we're pretty similar. And even here, we get disunity. So imagine the church in Rome with that, meant that much variety of people. Paul, as a leader, wants to see them united, just like I want us to be united. So how does he do it? How would you do it? He does it with one simple tool, the gospel. Just the gospel, the, the good news that we can be accepted by God because of what Jesus did, not because of what we do. So the book of Romans is just a really long, really, really detailed explanation and study of the gospel. So if you're not crystal clear in your mind what the gospel is, not sure you could articulate it to someone, maybe not sure you understand it yourself, you're in the right place. Because every Sunday we're in Romans, we'll be looking at the gospel from another unique angle. So, so far we've been looking at the dark aspects of it. It's been, it's been a rough uh, trek so far through Romans in the sense that it's not positive, encouraging K-love in here on Sunday mornings. It's we're sinners, wrath of God, dark stuff. There's dark stuff in the Bible too, and we've really been wading through it. Um, and this passage really is no different. This passage we get to Paul trying to unite the church under the fact that we're all under sin. If you look in your Bible, if you have it with you, look at verse 9, the last part of verse 9. last part of verse 9 is really the key to this whole passage that we're talking about. He says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Jews and Greeks would have, I think, been easy shorthand for Paul to say to the Roman Christians, everybody. Jews, Greeks, everybody in between, under sin. So it just means everybody. That word all, go dig into the original language, the Greek, all you want. It just means all. All. All of you. All of me up here. Your spouse, your kids, rich people, poor people, Democrats, Republicans, Ugly people, pretty people, dumb people, smart people, everybody is in this category of all. So let's define our terms before we go through the passage. We know what all means. That word under, that word under doesn't pack much punch, I don't think, when we just read it. But it means more than just being under, like, under an umbrella or under an overhang. It's more slavery language, like a slave is under a master. It literally means something like uh, submissive to the authority of whatever. So Paul's saying that all people are submissive to the authority of sinfulness, enslaved to sinfulness. So sin isn't just an occasional slip up here or there. It is a 
perpetual condition of slavery to sinfulness. So we got to figure out what sin means. I don't want to keep going if, if we're not clear on sin. Uh, literally, sin just means missing the mark. So any of you uh, do any bow hunting? I think my bow hunters aren't here this morning. Yeah, never. Okay. Imagine that you do. Well, it goes the same for any type of marksmanship. But I know I've seen bow hunters have the plastic deer in their yard with the bullseye on it. The deers out in the wild don't have bullseyes on them. I've never, nobody will take me hunting with them, but I'm assuming they don't. But people practice on these deer in their lawns with bullseyes on them. Sin means anywhere that you hit that deer other than the direct center of the bullseye. Sin is missing the mark. So God has given us sort of the bullseye of what we're shooting for in life here in the Bible. And all people have missed it, have missed the mark. Nobody's perfect. I'll talk about that in a little bit. And not only do we just miss the mark, we can't hit the mark. We're slaves to missing the mark. That's a very bold statement. To just say that all people, Gandhi, Billy Graham, all people, born slaves to sinfulness. It's a bold statement. I'm not going to assume that everybody in here believes it. It's a very drastic statement. But Paul, I think, anticipates that. So he goes immediately from there. If your Bible's, when it gets to verse 11, does it look different in your Bibles than it did at verse 10? More indentations, more tabs. That usually means it's a quote from something. In this case, he's assembled all these quotes from the from the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, mostly from Psalms, one from Isaiah. He's assembled all these quotes to prove his drastic point that all people are slaves to sin. So I would just like to kind of read through these and you judge for yourselves what you think about this. You judge for yourselves if, if Paul's right or if he's exaggerating a bit. So the big point All are enslaved under sin. We're going to wade through what he says here in these quotes, and then we're going to get to what he proposes as the solution to the problem. So, first, none is righteous. No, not one. As if somebody's going to say, "Ah, but what about? No, not one. None is righteous. He says even a little bit further down uh, in verse 12, no one does good. Not even one. Like he, I know you're thinking some people are, but no, Paul says none are righteous. No, not one. Now let that, that point sink in. Does that ring true to you that none are righteous? I kind of have a problem with it. When I initially hear that, if I'm being intellectually honest, I kind of have a bit of a problem with it. O- over the weekend, I watched a movie. I was, I was working, I was painting by myself in Albemarle, and it's lonely, so I got a movie from the library to keep me company while I painted, and it was uh, called World Trade Centers, or World Trade Center. You know the one with Nicolas Cage, Oliver, Oliver Stone directed it? Anybody see it? That is the tear-jerkingest movie I've ever seen. It's hard to watch, but I think good to remember what happened. But, you know, I watched that movie, and just the hero, her, heroism of those men, those firefighters and the port authority and the police officers and civilians. And they even had a couple of Marines that just came from the middle of someplace to come help. And, you know, I look at that and that seems good. 
Yet Paul says no one does good, none are righteous. But that seems good to me. It would seem good to you, I would think, too. It really is moving to watch what happened. Well, I think that it was good. I think Paul's point isn't that we occasionally do good. I think his point is that when we stand in comparison to God and perfect righteous holiness, we'll realize that we don't do good. We're not righteous. And maybe you still kind of have an intellectual problem with it. Well, let's look back at the Big Ten. You know, God said a lot of stuff for us to do morally, but the most famous are the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments. Okay, you can flip there if you want to in Exodus 20, but you don't have to. We'll just take sort of a short little quiz. Okay, I hear some of you flipping there, so I'll give you a second. Exodus 20. One of the clearest passages of what God would like from us, the target we're aiming at. Okay, the first one, really the first two can almost be bundled together. You shall have no other gods before me. So priority number one, you shall have no other gods before me. And then the next one's about making graven images. Basically, not viewing anything as more worthy of yourself or your time or your resources than God. Okay, so how are we doing so far with our righteousness? Just this week, just this morning, has anything crept over on top of God in terms of your, what you value, what you're most passionate about, what you view as most worthy in life? I think we can all go ahead at, at step one and say, okay, I've missed that mark. You know, the Bible calls us idolaters. I mean, we're worshiping idols. Whenever we are more passionate or concerned about our work than our God, we're idolizing our work and we're worshiping an idol. So righteousness is already looking not so great. Um, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. That just, vain means empty, like you just empty in how we talk about God. Do you ever casually just, it doesn't necessarily mean using God's name in profanity, but that I think would be included. Um, But basically just talking about him as though it's an empty idea. As though he's not really the creator of the universe, the almighty God of everything that is worth everything. Yeah, I think even I do that. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Ever not set a day of the week aside to rest and worship God? Rest in God and worship God? Okay, so we're idolaters and we're blasphemers and we're rebels because we just plain ignore that one. Not looking great. I could keep going, but I don't want to beat this horse to death. Honor your father and your mother. Ever dishonor your mom and dad? Here, how about these? There's a pocket here where we could feel maybe pretty good. You shall not murder. I may have a murderer in the congregation here that I don't know about, but I don't think so. So we're like, oh, well, you know, I haven't gotten any of the big ones about God right, but I haven't killed anybody. But then you flash forward to the New Testament and Jesus refers to this and he says, you've heard it said, don't murder. Well, I'm telling you, if you hate your brother and call him an idiot, you're just as guilty if you murdered him because in your heart, you you hate him. You're like, oh, okay, murderer. You shall not commit adultery. Well, 
I haven't committed adultery. So I've missed every other mark, but I'm not an adulterer. Then you flash forward to the New Testament, and Jesus again says, you've heard they said don't commit adultery. Well, I'm telling you, if you look lustfully at someone of the opposite sex, men, if you look lustfully at a woman, like you wish you could be with her, or women, if you look lustfully at a man, wish that he was your husband, then you pretty much commit adultery in your heart. And they're like, oh, idolater, blasphemer, rebel, murderer, adulterer. This is not going well. Don't steal, ever taken anything that wasn't yours? Yes, you have, as have I. Thieves, bunch of thieves. And so on, bearing false witness against your neighbor, ever say anything about someone that wasn't true that made them look bad? Slanderer. Uh, Don't covet your neighbor's stuff. Have you ever coveted somebody else's stuff? Like, God, why didn't you give me his stuff? We're coveters. It's not going to go well with us when we stand in front of the judge. But you say, well, that's Old Testament stuff. God's not that harsh anymore. Well, what about the big two? Jesus summed up everything God wants from us in two commandments. What's the first one? Who remembers it? Yes, I heard all those murmurs, and it was right. Jesus summed it all up. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. So I don't even feel like I have to elaborate on that. I mean, I think we give God this little sliver, this little compartment of our affection. But mainly we just want the stuff he gives us. So even if we were able to to avoid some of the sins of commission, hating somebody, taking something that's not yours, we're all guilty of the sins of omission, the things we omit, the things we don't do the way we don't worship God? Or what's the second biggest commandment? Yeah, love your neighbor as yourself. Just total selfless, reckless love for other people. We do not hit the mark. There is none righteous. No one does good. And maybe you're still thinking, well, I just don't know how literal the Bible is. Maybe some of you are still thinking, I don't know if I buy how strict that is. Well, let's just say judgment day comes for you and God looks at you and says, I'm going to give you the most fair judgment you can imagine. By the way, I'm ripping this off from Tim Keller again. All my good illustrations come from other people. He says, I'm going to give you the most fair judgment you can imagine. Forget about all that stuff I said in the Bible. Just, we'll just set that aside. But for your whole life, there's been this little invisible person that's been following you around. You never knew he or she was there. But they've been following you around, and every time you pressed an expectation onto someone else for how they should behave or not behave, they just wrote it down so they could get a sense of what you thought was right or wrong. And now we're just going to judge you by that. Not my stuff, but just how you've expected other people to live. So every time someone cuts you off and you, you don't cut people off, that's selfish. Okay, so no selfishness. We know that you think that is an important rule. So we'll do that one and so on. How would you do on that judgment day? Probably not a whole lot better. So we're in trouble, and the people around us are in trouble. There is none righteous. No, not even one. No one does good. No, not even one. And he goes on. No one understands. No one seeks for God. 
How about that one? No one seeks for God. Does that ring true? I'm running out of time. I can already tell. You guys don't have anywhere to be this afternoon, do you? I'll start talking fast. No one seeks for God. Does that ring true? Now remember, this is our condition when we're born. Like, no one naturally seeks for God. We have seeker-sensitive church models. I don't know if any of you think about that because you're not probably thinking about church as much as I am. But, you know, there's a lot of people that think you should do church in a very attractional way. They think there's seekers out there who are wanting God, and we're just going to do something that draws them to us like bugs to a bug zapper when they get here. They'll get this God they've been seeking. But the Bible says, no, nobody's seeking God. And I think it it proves true even for the seeker-sensitive churches because what do they bait people with? It's not God. It's other stuff. Like, we'll give away a car. People aren't coming in. Oh, I bet God's behind that car. No, they're like, I want a car. And I think we do it here. Really, just take a minute and think. Are you, in your life, seeking God? And it's different to seek God versus seeking the things you think he'll give you. Like if you could have good marriage, peace, peace of mind, you know, low anxiety, um, enough money to get by, decent amount of happiness and joy without God, would you be content with that? Not knowing him, not communing with him, not relationship with him, but you get all these blessings, would that be okay? I think a lot of people would probably be all right with that. A lot of people are mainly after that, I really think. That's why you get a lot of Christians that don't really, you know, this is hard. I'm not a reader. I'm not going to try to pursue God in this. I'm not really a praying person. That's for the really spiritual people. But I want the stuff of Christianity. I want my kids to get the morality of it and just the fun times of being with nice people and safe atmosphere. That's all good stuff, but it's not God. See, we're designed to seek God. Very first thing God wants us to do is put nothing above him in the Ten Commandments. Love him with all of our everything. Jesus' summary of all of God's commandments. It would be like in a marriage. Just imagine a marriage, and maybe some of you don't have to imagine. Maybe this is your marriage. Um, where the husband thinks he's a great husband because he really likes his wife's meals and the way his wife raises their kids. But has no affection for the woman at all. Is that a good relationship? Does that work very well? I think our relationship with God kind of gets like that, where we really want the good stuff of it. But God, ah. Take it or leave it. Now, I think it's confusing for us in our culture. I think it's hard for us to think about. Because in our, you know, NASCAR morality kind of world, where maybe I shouldn't have said NASCAR. I've got no problem with NASCAR. Randy took me to a NASCAR thing. That was great. But, you know, the culture where if they take the Ten Commandments out of the school or the public buildings, we get furious. You put those Ten Commandments back. Even though I'm going to ignore them in my own life, I want them up there because we're a Christian nation. Or if you think they're going to take in God we trust off of our money, you leave in God we trust on that money. Well, no, I don't trust him. I worry about everything as if it's up to me. But you keep it on the money. 
We do some things that seem like what people would do if they loved God, but I think many of us just really don't love God. We take prayer out of the schools and we just get all upset. You let those little kids pray. What, do you pray? No. Do you pray with your kids? No. I want to be able to if they want to in school, but we're not going to make it a part of our family. That would be weird. All right, I'm going to keep moving. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. I'm going to keep going because I don't have time to do every one of these. No one does good, not even one. Here's an interesting point. He transitions in verse 13 to such a weird batch of things. He says, he's talking about all this big scale morality stuff, and then he gets to just talking about our speech. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Why does he transition to this one specific part of life? The way we talk. Doesn't it seem like an odd thing to highlight? He gives it a lot of weight in this passage. It seems kind of strange to me at first. Their throat is an open grave. I had the joy of discovering a road-killed cat in front of my house this week. And I got the joy of push-mowing slowly my bank where there's lots of rocks right beside said cat as it rotted and stunk, flies everywhere. It was unpleasant. I even, I got on my roof to get all the leaves out of the gutters and I could smell the cat up there. Paul's using a very vivid imagery here. He's saying that people, naturally, their throat is like an open tomb. And what comes out of there is nasty. And he's not talking about breath. Some of you are probably thinking about times I've come and hugged you after the service when I've been talking for an hour. I've got a mint in my pocket. He's talking about the content that comes out of our mouths. And then he he gets specific and describes it. Uh, They use their tongues to deceive. Okay. Let's just think about this for a minute. I know I'm running out of time. But they use their tongues to deceive. Do you use your tongue to deceive? Are you a deceiver? The definition of deceive is basically to try to shape someone else's perception of reality into something that's not true, but it's what you want them to believe. That's basically deception. Trying to shape someone else's perspective of reality into something that's not true, but it's what you want them to believe. Do you use your words to deceive? Do you use your words to shape other people's perceptions of reality into what you want it to be versus what is true? We do. In church, most of us are church people. We do. Big time in church. And what gets us in church is because we want to look like we're righteous and good. So we talk in such a way that we will look as though we're righteous and good. When often, behind the scenes, we speak more truthfully, and it's not so righteous and good. I know there's gossip that goes on in this church. I know there's grumbling that goes on in this church, as in every church. I don't love anybody any less for it. I fall into it myself, which I know is not good. I'm a pastor, and I have found this passage very, very convicting. But think, if you—we love these movies like Liar, Liar— or uh, what was the one Ricky Gervais did, The uh, Invention of the Lie, or something like that? 
Anybody see that one? We love these movies where someone's inhibitions are removed and suddenly all they say are true things. Or even I think the TV show House is kind of like that. He just, no filter. And we just love living vicariously through that. And we find it strangely refreshing. Like I had a roommate in college. I think I've mentioned him before. His name was Corrine. Corrine Mihela, a Romanian PhD student with a couple of idiot college guys, me included. I don't know a bunch of Europeans. He's probably, probably the main European I've ever known. He had no filter. He spoke truth. Blunt, harsh truth. I remember he was dating a girl, and she asked him something about her weight. That's your elicited response. She asked, she, she mentioned something about her weight, like she had put on a couple of pounds. Corrine didn't beat around the bush. He basically said, yeah. He, made, he said, well, you're busy. You don't have time to work out and eat healthy. Maybe he said it. I could hear. She said, he said something more like, well, if you worked out and eat, would eat right, you wouldn't have all the extra weight. With a Romanian accent that I used to be able to impersonate, but I'm not going to try now. <laughs> or one time I, I worked at Super Target, one of my jobs, and I, they were transitioning from a weekly paycheck to a biweekly every other week. And I wasn't thinking. I just got the news. I was like, oh, man, I'm used to getting a weekly check. And, you know, obviously if I thought for a second, it's the same amount of money. You know, I just have to manage it a little bit. Well, he didn't miss a beat. He was like, sounds like you don't know how to manage your money. <laughs> like, dude, I'm just eating my cereal, just talking, thinking out loud. No filter there. So it was true. What would it be like if you just spoke truth? Would people find you as, as warm and fuzzy as they do now? Or would they see some rough edges? Maybe some of the things are true. Maybe... We don't speak truth because we know inside we have what he says, the venom of asps, a mouthful of curses and bitterness. Maybe we know in our hearts we really are just plain frustrated. We're frustrated with life. We're frustrated with the people around us. There's curses and bitterness in there, so we've got to clean it up, basically deceive, make people think that we love everybody and like everybody. And it's deception. So you're probably thinking, well, what does Matt want us to do just to just let it out? Just in the foyer instead of all the <laughs> pleasant meet and greet, just see it all out like Western barroom brawl out there where everybody just tells people finally what they really think. No, I'm not necessarily shooting for that. But we need to realize the deception is no better than if we openly told someone, I strongly dislike you for these reasons. The deception is no better in God's eyes. It may be worse. Because then it leads people to believe lies. All are under sin. So we're so, just so messed up. I am, you are, all the people you care about are under slavery to these things. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. Where have humans gone where there's not been misery and ruin? Uh, the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. I've got to wrap up. I don't want you to just start telling people off. I want you to change. Just like I don't want, I want me to change. 
You think that this sin isn't a part of my life? As many people as I have in my life right now, and I feel contractually obligated to like them all, what if you, were have, you had to like everybody? And at the same time, I'm biblically obligated not to act and deceive people? I mean, how much sin is being revealed to me every day? It can be excruciating, and it should be for all of us to see how much we are under sin. I don't want you to just start telling people off and start acting righteous. I want us all to change. But how? How can we change? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. This is a confusing couple of verses, but I'm going to read it, unpack it uh, concisely and hopefully clearly. In verse 19, Now we know that whatever the law says, meaning like the Ten Commandments, Jesus' big two commandments, everything the Bible tells us we should be doing, what the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. How many of you just wanted to maybe stop talking so much after we talked about all the deception, cursing stuff? So that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And here's the real key. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. A big mistake church people make is that we think through the rules, we can change. Maybe you think if you print out the Ten Commandments and then the big two, love God, love people, and just have them everywhere on your windshield as you're driving, in your room, at home, if you have the law there, maybe you can really try and change. But the law doesn't work that way. The law only reveals the sin. Law reveals the problem. It doesn't solve the problem. It's like, have you ever broken a bone or maybe thought you did? When you were a kid, you fell out of a tree or something and your arm hurts and your parent comes out to you and says, well, can you move it? I guess that's the ultimate test of is your bone broken? Is that, is that even true? I don't know if it is or not, but that was growing up. If I ever hurt my finger really bad, first question, can you move it? I'd be like, Yes. That's kind of what the law is like. We're just broken people. And God says, well, can you move? Can you love me? Can you love people? Can you stop being selfish? Can you stop deceiving people? And we're like, no, God, I can't. And then he scoops us up and takes us to the one who can heal us. That's where Jesus comes in. So much of our Christianity doesn't require Jesus. The way we do it. We think we can just white-knuckle discipline our way to change. It doesn't work like that. The law reveals the problem. Jesus solves the problem. The law reveals the problem. Jesus solves the problem. So in all of this, I don't want you to go out of here and try hard. Because you're just going to fail. You might do well for about 30 minutes. And then you're going to fail again because we are broken, screwed up people. I know it's not a super uplifting Memorial Day message for you guys, but in a way it is. It's a diagnosis, and I'm telling you, but it's okay. We have the cure. We have Jesus. And what we're going to talk about next week outlines it in a lot more detail. And starting in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. It's been given to you apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. All the law and the prophets have been talking about Jesus, but now in Jesus we have it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
And it goes on. We're going to talk about that in detail next week. The Pharisees tried to change by rules. They even had a rule. They didn't want to commit adultery, and then they knew they weren't supposed to look lustfully. So they had a rule. They wouldn't look at a woman. They wouldn't even let their eyes hit a woman. So they'd be walking through crowded streets, running into stuff, so they wouldn't break their rules and look at a woman. But their hearts didn't change. You can't change by rules. So I guess what I want from you today is just decision. This is a bold bold claim. Do you believe it or do you not believe it? Or are you unsure and need more information? But any of those three options requires action. Do you believe it? You say yes, then run to Jesus. Trust in Jesus. Stop trying so hard to look good and right. Trust in Jesus. Maybe you say, I'm not sure. I don't believe it. Then you don't come in here and act like you do. Go confirm your suspicion if that's what you think. Have some intellectual integrity. You either need to run to Jesus or discard him totally. Or another, it's intellectually, you have integrity if you're just not sure yet and you need some more information. In that case, go study, go read, come talk to me. I can help you with what I can. But this is what sets Christianity apart. I talked to a girl. I know we got to go. I know. Almost done. I talked to a girl out here in the parking lot. doesn't go to our church. Um, but her position was a common one. She just doesn't think you can pick one religion over all the religions. If you were born in India, you'd be Hindu. You just happen to be born in Monroe, so you're Christian. So, you know, your truth isn't any more valid than their truth. They're all, you know, paths to God. And I said, well, what then do you think about Jesus? And she's like, well, he's fine. He's just like all the rest. So what do you think about when he says, I'm the one way? I'm the only way. And she didn't really know that he had ever said that, but he did. The the Jesus peace is what sets us apart from Islam and all the others. It's the only thing that really sets us apart. The morality is basically the same in the major world religions. It's dealing with the sin that sets us apart. We have Jesus. Everybody else has rules. I better stop talking. I don't know where each and every person is at, even though I know some of you pretty well. It may be that some of you really do need to make this clear decision, even if you've been at church for a long time. It may be that you've made the decision, but you've never made it public through baptism. But I'll dunk you in that thing next week. Make it public. I believe in Jesus. Maybe you've done those things, but you're not growing in it. You're not growing in your relationship and love for God. Then come, you join the church. It doesn't have to be here if you're not. Go, go to house to house. I really believe house to house would be good for you to grow in your love for God and passion for people and your knowledge of the word. Some of you just think, I'm not a reader, so I'm not going to get into a book. When you became a Christian, you became a reader. You just did. God revealed himself in a book, and when you become a Christian, he gives you the Holy Spirit to help you. You can read. You can do it. God will enable you to do it. You might be slow like me. It took me four years to read through the whole Bible. Some of you people are doing it every year. I've only read through it once. I just finished at the beach this year. It took me four years. But you can do it, and it's powerful, and you'll grow. Maybe some of you are doing all that, and it's time to start looking outwards. Start making disciples like Jesus said. 
Let's pray. I'm going to stop. <laughs> I know it's abrupt, but I'm just going to keep going all day if I don't stop. So I just want to pray for you, and we'll sing a song together. Father, thank you for your word. Uh, it's a hard reality to face that all are under the slavery of sin, but it's a glorious cure that you've given us in Christ. May we all be refreshingly, uh, may we just, may we all seek Jesus, grow in our love for him, and naturally grow in conformity to him, become more Christ-like. I pray for the people here who have been just feeling so bad about themselves because they're trying to keep these rules and they know what they ought to do, but they just can't do